All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you do not have a Bible, I would strongly encourage you to pick one up over on the resource table so you can follow along with us. But we are in 2 Samuel chapter 21, and we are going to read through verses 1 to 14. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, and due to the length of this passage, we're actually going to read it up front as opposed to how we've been reading throughout just because they've been such long chapters. So let's read God's word together. Now there was a famine in the days of of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel in Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and, or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us. So that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said to him, said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the sons of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hand of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of a harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public squares of Bashan, where the Philistines had hanged them on that day. The Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. God, we come before you right now, and we ask, Lord, uh, that you might give us a sensitivity to your word, that you might allow us to see uh, the gravity of the situation that we find this passage in, uh, Lord, that we would, we would learn, that we would glean from it, that we would see 
the horrible warning of what it means uh, when one breaks covenant. And we pray, God, that you uh, would allow us to be a faithful people, a people who uh, walk closely with you all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Laughing at things that you shouldn't. That happens sometimes, right? You, you shouldn't laugh at I remember growing up, one of the shows that my family would watch uh, pretty regularly was America's Funniest Home Videos. And if you've ever watched America's Funniest Home Videos, it's usually laughing at people's expense. Something was caught on video. But one of the ones that I couldn't get over, even as a younger child, I remember watching, I was like, I wonder if the person got hurt. It's when people fall. They would have video of people outside in the snow or in the ice, and just one person after another would fall, and you're, you're kind of laughing, but then you're like, what if that person fell? Sometimes an elderly person, they might have broke a hip. They might have ended up in the hospital. It's not really that funny, right? It's not really something to be joking about. What about today's world? Everybody's got a camera. Everybody's got video. Everything's posted online. You make an embarrassing moment, mistake, it might follow you the rest of your life. It might be immortalized as a meme. And, and that just doesn't stop there. It's not just, oh yeah, people laugh at me. It can lead to, to bullying. It can lead to emotional trauma. It's a big deal. And even now, tragedies that sometimes happen. I remember growing up and I was, I was in school when the space shuttle blew up. The, 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 the space shuttle blew up. And I remember even back then, jokes that followed that particular tragedy. And you, you hear these things, you see these things, and, and maybe even as a parent, you sometimes are telling your kids, this isn't funny. This isn't a laughing matter. This, this is not something to be joking about. And, and that's the problem, though, because we live in this world that tries to make light of everything, that tries to joke about everything that we encounter, yet there are things in this life that are not laughing matters. There are moments that are not humorous at all, and today's passage is one of those times. I feel like I've said this a bunch of times in our study through First and Second Samuel, but this passage is awful. It is sad, sad, sad. We see the wrath and judgment that follows Saul's disobedience. It is sobering. It is a warning. The consequences of one man's sin and the extent that it reached is far. And what we see in all of this is that covenant breaking is no joke. Covenant breaking is no joke. It is no laughing matter. So that's going to be the heart of, of what we consider in our time today. Uh, we're going to begin by looking at the context of affliction. We're going to begin by looking at the context of affliction. We're going to see that David and his reign, uh, they're going through a three-year period of famine. And we're going to see what's God doing in the midst of all of this. And then lastly, we're going to look at the cost of atonement. We're going to see what the remedy is for uh, the sin of breaking the covenant. So let's begin. Let's pick up at verse 1 as we see the context of affliction. Uh, as I mentioned last week, 2 Samuel proper kind of ended last week. At this point now, for the rest of the book, 
We're going to have six sections, six sections, and uh, we will unpack each one weekly. So we'll go through a, a section at a time. And what we see is there, there are key moments in David's reign. It's really a glimpse of the kingdom. It's really a snapshot kind of in this epilogue of what is God doing in the midst of David's reign. So in this first one, as we look at the context of affliction, I want us to see that the famine is sent. A famine is sent. Read verse 1 with me. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Now, we don't know when this happened, okay? Remember, chapter 20, we are not chronologically following chapter 20 now. So this was earlier in David's reign. Based on the context, the one thing we're pretty certain of is this took place after chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Because Mephibosheth is on the scene. So it's sometime after that, but it's earlier in the reign of David. Definitely probably prior to uh, the sin with Bathsheba. But with that said, they have this prolonged famine. Now we need to understand, this is three years. So this isn't a few weeks. This isn't a few months. It's, it's three years of food shortage. And we know this is a big deal because when God promised that he was going to give them the promised land, he would often label it, as we look in the Old Testament, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, there's no flowing right now during a famine. This is a time of, of shortage. So when you see this instantly, we start wondering what's going on. Is this a matter of lucky, unlucky? Because that's what we often characterize success and failure in our world, in our culture. We say somebody's lucky. Like, he always wins. He, you know, he always wins that drawing or that raffle. He always gets the good thing, the good that. He gets a good parking spot. Man, he is just a lucky person. And then on the flip side, we see the person who the shots don't go their way. Yesterday was at a basketball game. Our shots just weren't falling. And there's that part of us, you start thinking, well, they're just unlucky today. Just the other team's lucky. The balls are going in. The other team is the lucky one. We're unlucky. Things are not going our, our way. But what we see in this passage, and I would argue what we see over the course of, of all of Scripture, is there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance, that what we see actually is God's sovereign hand in our passage. What we see is God's fingerprints all over this story. God actually warned them that this would happen if they were unfaithful. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, he says, If you turn aside, if you serve other gods, if you worship them, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. So God warned, you're unfaithful, one result will be I will bring famine to your land. Even in the end times, Luke 21, 11, Jesus warns that famines will take place prior to his return. And what we see in all of this is that not just that God's hand is at work, that this famine is ultimately sent from God to his people, it's a way that God gets our attention. Do you hear that? God gets our attention. You and I, we're stranded out in the middle of nowhere. We're stranded on a desert island, and we're hoping somebody finds us. What do we typically want to do? We want to create a signal fire. You want to have a signal fire so somebody from a distance could see. Now, the, the key with the signal fire is you want to burn stuff that burns dark. 
So you want black or gray smoke. You want it to be very clear. You don't want it to just be burning something, but it's nice and and there's no smoke. And, And really what we see in this famine is this is God's signal fire for his people. He's getting their attention. He wants them to see that I'm doing something right now. You need to pursue me. Now we need to understand, I I need to make a very, very clear distinction this morning. Not all sin results in like a one-to-one response. You remember Jesus with the disciples, they saw the guy blind and like, who sinned? Him or his parents? He's like, neither is for the glory of God. So it's not always the case, but doesn't mean that it isn't the case sometimes. And I think what we see in this is trials come with purpose. James 1, 12, 1, 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in other words, when trials come our way, you and I need to keep our eye out. We need to be on the lookout. We need to be understanding that God is trying to get our attention. So I want to ask you today, I want you to kind of do an overview of your life, overview of circumstances going on in your life, relationally, financially, health-wise, whatever the case is, I want you to ask this question, what circumstances am I going through right now that God is trying to get my attention? Because I think what happens You and I, we get so caught up in the circumstances that we don't appreciate that they're there for a reason. We don't realize that there's a purpose behind them. There's an intent on the part of God. If anything, I think we too often view it as I'm just being unlucky today or I'm being lucky. It's it's just a matter of chance. It happens is what we say. What is God trying to teach you through this? So we see the famine sent, but then secondly, we see face is sought. Uh, Face is sought, and it says, and David sought the face of the Lord. So the famine got David's attention. Now we don't know at what point during the famine, because it says it lasted three years. So part of me wonders, did David wait three years before he finally sought the Lord, or was he seeking the Lord over the course of the three years, and then finally God revealed himself? Either way, there is this seeking that takes place. Now, as I, as I reminded us, this is not chronological. So this is a little bit of the David that we've grown to love earlier on in the book. This is a David that, at least partially, because he's going to do something right after this that leaves you kind of your head scratching. But we see a little bit more of the David, a man after God's own heart. Notice what he does. First of all, he goes to the right one. It says, then David sought the face of the Lord, uh, face of Yahweh. If you have a problem with a company, who do you tend to try to, to talk to? Somebody who is in what? Somebody who's in charge, right? You, I mean, you go out of your way. I remember it now. I didn't get to that high of a level, but there was a particular grocery store. I will not call them out locally, but it's a big grocery store, and there's only so many big grocery stores. So it's one of them, and I go to Kroger right now instead, so you can do the math. We had a reoccurring problem with our ground chuck that I would have little bits of styrofoam from the black styrofoam. Somehow, and, and I'm just not a big fan of eating styrofoam. Call me picky. So 
I, I brought it up to the person. I saw, oh, it just happened. Well, this became like this ongoing saga for like weeks. And I talked with this person. I talked to a manager, talked to the head of the store. And they're like, well, we've never had this problem before. I was like, every time I come in here, I'm getting black little bits in my, in my meat. And I was like, I don't think I'm just like lucky once again, right? Like we were talking about. And, and it never got resolved, but I, I tried because I kept going to the person who is in charge. You see what, what David realized, and this is the beauty of David in this passage. He sees the famine. He knows he's got a sovereign God. It's here for a reason. So he goes to the one in charge. He goes to God. He, it, it actually, the language, it says to seek an audience with a ruler, is seeking the face. So he, he, he not only seeks the time with the ruler, he has this time. He engages with him. James 1.5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And I think this, friends, this needs to be our default. All those circumstances I just asked you about, what's going on in your life right now, I have to ask you, are you going to God in those circumstances? Because we have bad tendencies. I know I do. I'll try to figure out a solution on my own, or I go to people. I go to my close friend, or I go to my wife, or I, I go to them, like, like that's my default. I'll talk with them and kind of work through it. And it's not bad that you're going to friends. It's not bad that you're going to your pastor. It's not bad that you're going to other people. But who should we start with? We see God. We go to God in those situations, and that's what we see David doing here, and it's a good thing. He goes to the right one. That's biblical troubleshooting. So whatever you're going through right now, I have to ask, are you going to God on it? Because that should be our de facto. That's what we should be doing. But not only does he go to the right one, he goes by the right way. It's the seeking idea. It's the idea of pursuing Deuteronomy 4.29 says, From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And that's kind of the language we see David here in this moment. He's not just saying, hey, God, what's going on with the famine? It's this idea of pursuing God, like, God, I want to know you. I want to know your ways. I want to know what you are doing. And we know what that's like when we're trying to find something, right? Have you ever lost something? Maybe you lost your keys. Uh, we had a, an electronic break at home, and my wife, because she remembers stuff and I don't, she's like, hey, you got a warranty on that. And I'm like, we did. And I'm like, did not know that. And I had to find the receipt, and it, it was a mess. I found it, God's grace. But I'm looking everywhere, high and low. And the whole time I'm like, why do I not put stuff in order? This is my fault. And we found it, though. It's that seeking idea. And that's what God wants you and I to do with him. That we would pursue him. That we would seek him. That we wouldn't stop so easily when maybe we don't hear a response from him. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in, notice what he says, everything, whatever circumstance you're going through, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he pleaded with God for the land. He pleaded with God for the people. Why are you seeking God's face today? Where do you go when your life is a mess? 
Who do you go to? What kind of effort are you exerting? I mean, that's one of the things that should really distinguish us from non-believers, from unbelievers, is that we are a people who seek God. We seek him when we wake up. We seek him throughout the day. We seek him when we go to bed. And then we start it all over the next morning. Because that's how we live. That's how we survive. That's how we function in this world. So we've seen the famine sent. We saw his face saw it. Lastly, we see foolishness is stressed. Foolishness is stressed. He says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. All right, that statement, that's all we know about Saul's dealings with the Gibeonites. These verses. We know nothing about them elsewhere. So there's not like a certain backstory that we could read where Saul slaughtered the Gibeonites. But we do have a backstory on the Gibeonites. You can look at it later. I'm going to give you kind of a a brief recap, but you can look at it. Joshua chapter 9. Previous chapter of of chapter 8 of Joshua, the Israelites defeat Ai. And not only defeat it, they, they pretty much wipe out everybody. So they've already beaten Jericho. They've beaten Ai. So you get to chapter 9, you got all the inhabitants that are not Israelites. There's one of two choices. We're going to fight these people. That's what everybody does. They gather as one. We're going to fight the Israelites. The Gibeonites, a little bit more clever, they're like, eh, I don't like that option. So what we're going to do is we're going to trick the Israelites. So they, they dressed up in a way that they looked like they were sojourners, that they were from a distant land. And they came to Joshua and them and said, hey, we would, we would like to kind of serve you. We would like to enter into a covenant with you. Let's, let's, and, and there's some skepticism initially, but they're able to trick them. They end up entering into this covenant. Sure enough, they find out later that these people are actually from the area. But because they had already made this agreement with them, they were now protected. Joshua 9, 19. It says, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This, will be, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So up to this point, the Gibeonites were untouchable. They ended up serving. They kind of coexisted with the Israelites until at some point in Saul's reign, we don't know when, he goes wild with them. And he kills, and I'm assuming he killed several of them, not like one or two. He killed a lot of Gibeonites. He tried to exterminate them. And now, fast forward however many years, there's this famine and God says, hey, the reason for this famine is because of what Saul did by breaking the covenant that you guys made concerning the Gibeonites. And I think what we need to see in this is God's grace and mercy. We need to see that God is being compassionate in this passage. I mean, I, I know we probably have all in, encountered this. You're in a relationship with a person, friend, uh, or whatever the context is. Have you, has somebody ever been mad at you and you don't know why? Raise your hand. 
All grown adults, all husbands, raise your hand. No, but there is this that sense sometimes where you're like, I have no idea why this person doesn't like me, but it is very clear they don't like me. And they don't let you know why they don't like you. So you're in this kind of ambiguity. I'm like, I don't know. Like, did I say something? Did I do? And then maybe later you find out the backstory. Like, oh my goodness, I did do that. No wonder they don't like me. And then you can apologize. And maybe there's some reconciliation that takes place. Well, God shines the light on. That's what he does. This famine was the result of Saul's sin. And really, the heart of his sin, it's, it's not just simply that he tried to kill the Gibeonites. The problem is they made a vow before God in the name of God that they would protect these people. So when you break that vow, you're taking the Lord's name in vain, Exodus 27. You're breaking the covenant, discrediting Yahweh. So God reveals this to him. That's God's grace, God's mercy. But isn't that our God? Let's zoom out from this passage. Let's think big picture. Let's think gospel. Let's think God's word. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, here's a a certain truth in all of that. God revealed to you your need of a savior. There was a point in your life where God opened up your eyes, opened up your mind, and and convinced you that I'm a sinner deserving wrath and condemnation, and I need help outside of self. And God was gracious and merciful to reveal that to you. Because God could have not revealed. God could have stayed mad at us and not let us know. Like, what did I do wrong? And then next thing you know, condemned us to wrath and condemnation and hell. But that's not what God does. He reveals to us our sin. He reveals to us sin's consequences. So we have to ask, first of all, does God forget? Are we able to hide our sins from God? Because this has been many years likely from when Saul did this till God ends up revealing to them what they did wrong. Do you see his grace and mercy Are you grateful that God opened up your eyes to your need of him? Are you grateful that God is continuing to open your eyes? One of the greatest blessings in life is conviction when you sin. When there's remorse, when there's guilt, when there's like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. And God weighs heavy on you. That's a blessing. It might not be enjoyable. It might not feel good, but that is God's grace and mercy. And we see God's grace and mercy with the Israelites in our passage today, letting them know, hey, the reason the famine here is here is because of the blood guilt of Saul. All right, so we've seen the context of affliction. We've seen the famine sent, face sought, foolishness, stress. Well, what happens next is horrible. It is tragic It is awful, and we begin to see the weight of covenant breaking and the wrath that follows. First of all, there is covenant curse. Read verses 2 to 6 again with me. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord 
The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now we need to understand, it's very important as we're unpacking this story. At no point does God direct him to do what he's doing in this passage. Okay? We need to make that clarification. Now, God's going to use it. God, we're going to see the gospel play itself out when we look at the idea of atonement. But this is David. And this is part of the sad part of David. He seeks the Lord to find out. But then once God tells him he doesn't seek the Lord anymore, he goes and tries to remedy the problem on his own. Because that's what we do as people, as humans, as sinners. We try to rectify problems in our own strength, our own idea. So he goes to the Gibeonites. And, and what we need to remember is, first of all, we need to remember the covenant. We need to remember the covenant Joshua 9.15, remember the, the backstory of the Gibeonites. 9.11, they say, hey, let's cut a covenant, the Gibeonites ask. Verse 15, and it says, and Joshua made peace with them, and he cut a covenant with them to let them live. What does that language mean, cutting a covenant? Here's what it means, and I, and I know over the course of our sermons, for some of you, this is familiar territory, but for the rest of you, I want to give you kind of a, a, a biblical background on covenant. What they would do when they would enter into a covenant is they would kill animals. They would kill the animals, they would cut them in half, they would put part of the animal on one side, across from it they would put animals on the other side, all right? And then the two people entering into the covenant would walk between the cut animals. And what that was representative of is if we break the covenant, if we don't make good on this promise, what happened to the animals, may it happen to me, is what they're asking. It's, it's the idea of covenant cursing. Well, Israel asked for cursing when they entered into this covenant with the Gibeonites. Now Saul has broken the covenant, therefore he has asked for cursing to come down upon the Israelites. Now here's the tension, and I don't want to digress too much. You can look at it later. Deuteronomy 24.16. Deuteronomy 24.16 says that a child should not die as a result of the sin of the father. And yet, we're going to have children and grandchildren of the father, grandfather, dying as a result of the sin of the, the father. So we're left with this tension here. Are they, are they going against God's word? What's going on? I would argue the Deuteronomy passage is talking much more on individual sin. So if John does this, his son's not going to die because there's consequences for John. Understand what, what I think is going on, what is was being stressed, is Saul is not your ordinary citizen, is he? When Saul broke the covenant, what was his role? What was his position? He was, he was king. This isn't an individual thing. He was representative. He was God's instrument. He was God's chosen leader for the Israelites. And when he broke it, it was, it was kind of that representative nature. So I would say not 
related to the Deuteronomy passage. But we remember the covenant, that somebody's got to bear the curse because the covenant has been broken. So we need to understand, the Gibeonites, this is not about revenge. This is not, Saul killed some of our people, we get to pay back by killing some of his descendants. No, this is about, you entered into a covenant with us, you have broken the covenant, there are consequences for breaking the covenant. So you remember the covenant, you need to reap the curse. So David realizes this, so he's trying to settle, uh, settle this ultimately covenant breaking. Uh, it's the idea of like settling a bill with somebody. So if you've ever uh, had to settle a bill, like one of our friends here had a, a long going thing because he's a contractor and just trying to figure out uh, how we were going to f- settle the bill with a, a customer that didn't want to pay and, and all the ins and outs and arguments over that kind of stuff. It's that idea like, well, how do we figure this out? And first of all, the Gibeonites say, hey, you, you can't buy us off. So you can't just give us gold and silver. That's, that's not going to cut it. And we're really not at liberty to go in and say, hey, we're just going to kill people. So David realized, I was like, all right, so what would you want me to do? And they throw it out there. We want seven. Why seven? Probably because of the idea of fullness. Seven is the number of fullness. It, it kind of brings the fullness to uh, the covenant curse. He says, how can we make atonement? It's the idea to satisfy the justified grievance, to make amends. So we broke the covenant. What can we do to make amends? Well, God warns them in Numbers 35, verse 33, what some of the costs will be for that. Numbers 35, 33, he says, no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So we start seeing a pattern here. To make atonement, it's going to cost the life of somebody. And then Hebrews 9.22, it says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I think before we move on, I think what we really need to kind of wrap our minds around, we really need to consider, is that atonement it's horrible. Understand that. It's, it's, it's horrible. It, it should disturb us. If you look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was gross. It was bloody. It was disgusting. It smelled. It was meant to be disturbing. It wasn't clean and, and clear and like, oh, this is no big deal. Like, it would trouble you. The weak, weak stomach people like me would have had a very difficult time in that context. I think we need to, to be bothered by the horror of it. But I think also we need to start thinking about the New Testament reality that Jesus suffered as a covenant breaker. As these seven sons are going to be killed as a result of Saul's sin, Saul's breaking of the covenant, Christ died on the cross because of our covenant breaking. We need to remember, have we broken God's covenant? Are we guilty as a lawbreaker? And do you fear the coming wrath? Because that's what we see in all. This is wrath. This is judgment. So we see the covenant curse. But right in the midst of it, we see covenant protection. We see covenant protection. Read verse 7 with me. 
But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between God, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Do you see the contrast? We've got two kings referenced in our passage. We have King Saul. He is the covenant what? Breaker. And then we have King David. He is the covenant what? Keeper. The Israelites are a mess because of their former king. And their current king reminds himself of a promise that he made. I mean, it's, think about it. Every year when we have election time, what do politicians always argue? They always argue that they are trustworthy, that look at my record, I always make good on my promise, and when they look at the contestant or their, their opposition, what do they always say? He's a liar, she's a liar, and they never make good on their promise. And we kind of see that contrast between David and Saul. When did Saul, or when did David make this oath that he's speaking of? 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. It's that language, it's that word. Does anybody remember it? It starts with an H. Hesed. It's covenant love, covenant faithfulness. Jonathan and David are in this, entering into this covenant. He says, if I am still alive, show me the hesed love of the Lord. That, if I, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And big picture, what Jonathan was asking David is if I die, don't exterminate my family. Don't kill my children. Don't kill all of my descendants. Leave them. Please leave them. And then 2 Samuel uh, 9, Mephibosheth, he ends up acting on this, allows him to eat at the table of the king, so he's begun to fulfill this love and faithfulness. But we need to realize Mephibosheth, you could argue, should be the first person killed here. Because he's the closest, really. Because the two sons of Saul here are from a concubine. But Mephibosheth is the descendant of Jonathan. If Saul would have died and Jonathan would have lived, Jonathan would have been the natural one to be king. So there's a very clear reality that Mephibosheth was in harm's way, and yet note his condition. David, the king, spared him. Isn't that remarkable? He spared him. He's, he's not the one. He's not the one. If you've ever watched, um, especially once you get in the upper levels of football, at football practices, especially during the season sometimes, the quarterback will often have a different color jersey. And the reason is, if you know anything about football, how your quarterback does has a strong impact on how you do as a team. So a lot at practice, there's been guys actually uh, in the NFL who tackled the quarterback during practice who have been escorted off of the field and lost their job, got cut from the team because you don't touch the quarterback. He is untouchable at practice. And what we see here with David is he makes Mephibosheth untouchable. He cannot be touched because God's king, David, made a covenant and he was not going to break his covenant. Think about that. When God's wrath comes, when Christ returns, guess who we resemble in the passage? 
believers. Mephibosheth. We're going to get spared, right? We are untouchable. It's the hope of the gospel. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, and I should not lose nothing of all that he's given me, given me but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What good news today. That no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances come, you and I, because of Jesus, are untouchable. That I am assured heaven, I will never experience the wrath of God because Christ has done it on my behalf. We are safe under his care. And that's what it looks like to be in covenant. Do you see how good it is to be in covenant? Can we trust him though? How safe are we? Do we need to fear the coming wrath? Friends, if you're a believer in Christ, there should be no fear of death. There should be no fear of, of, of hell. There should be no fear. If anything, where you should be unsettled when we think of wrath and, and the future is you should be unsettled because you know people who are not as safe as you are. That's where you should be restless. That's where you should be bothered. But not for yourself. So we've seen a covenant curse. We've seen covenant protection. And then lastly, I want us to look at covenant grace. Read verse 8 with me. So the king took two sons of Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzilla, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hand of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley's harvest. Then Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul had done, David went. He took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zillah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. First of all, I want us to take note that there is a whole lot of hurt here. So Jonathan's half-brothers are killed along with some, uh, some descendants or grandchildren of Saul. And I, I want us to, to be as appropriate as possible, especially in mind that I know there are younger people still in here, but I, I want you to come to grips. Uh, one of the things you'll see happening if there's a tragic accident is what they'll typically do if somebody is, is deceased is they cover the body. Because it's disturbing. It's uh, even sometimes uh, if the person is the one who lost somebody, you, you try to keep the person away from the body because it's, it's, it's such a, a reality. So what happens is these seven are killed. 
Now, when we read hanged, it's probably not hanging like you and I think. It's probably not rope. They are probably actually hoisted up, maybe on a stake. They were crucified. Uh, Doesn't really matter the how. What matters is they were executed publicly. They experienced wrath and judgment. And what they did is they left the body up there. They left it up there. And one of the reasons they would do that historically, it was a marker that this person had been uh, punished for breaking the covenant, that they had been punished for breaking the law. So he leaves them up there. Now here's where I want us to start being disturbed by what we just read. The mother Ritzpah, who lost her two sons, she went to where they were killed, and she didn't leave. She was there. Day in and day out, she looked up and saw her children, who are dead now, slowly decay and rot. The smell would have gotten worse and worse. And day in and day out, she didn't leave. She protected them from birds coming down. She protected them from predators coming to get the bodies. Day in and day out, that's what she did. We don't know how long. Actually, the language where it says she was there till the the certain rains came, that could have been a five-month window. Can you imagine watching and like reliving the reality that my child is dead my two children, again and again. And I think what we see in this, there's not like an easy application for you and I. Because we love that. We love where it's like, so what does this mean for you and I? You know what it means? Is that sin is awful. What it means for you and I is that covenant breaking, this is what it produces. Death. When God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die, die. Here it is. We see death, we see wrath, we see consequences because of the fall. It's James 1.15. Desire conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin full grown, it gives birth to death. And this was the misery of this mother every day until the day that David ends up having the bodies taken down and he has them properly buried. But in the midst of the hurt, though, the one thing we see is some hope. Here's the deal, and this is why, once again, David, this was never God's idea directly with David. Because he crucifies, they, they, they kill the, the seven guys, so what should happen if it was really like a God thing and this was how he made atonement? Immediately, what should have ended? The famine didn't end, right? I mean, it's like, like how do we move on to the next level, God? Like, how, how, what do we need to do? Played a video game sometimes with my boy, and, and I remember the one video game could not figure out how to get past this level. Thought we did everything, and then finally you, you go online because you can Google it, and you're like, oh, we missed that one part. And once we did that one thing, then we were able to move on. And it's not until David shows compassion and shows mercy to this grieving mother that God says, okay, now 
Now I'm going to hear your pleads for the people. And I think what we see in all this is the futility of you and I trying to make amends for our sin. David was just trying all his own thing, and God's like, that's not necessarily what I wanted you to do, but I will hear. And then it says that God accepts this at the very last verse. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. One, can you identify in some small way with this woman? Have you experienced pain in this world? I mean, this world, it, let's be brutally honest, it can be ugly. It can be sad. It can be tragic. But I also, I, I hope we see in the midst of this, do you see the silver lining? That we have a God who's made atonement. We have a God who accepts atonement. A God who does hear our pleads. I think we, we live in a world that is often very deceptive. I think our commercials are probably one of the greatest examples. Commercials paint a picture that's not reality, right? I mean, let's just use one because it seems like they always have commercials. Uh, beer commercials. Beer commercials paint a picture of life that if you drink, you are going to have the funnest time. You're going to have men. You're going to have beautiful women. You're going to have party. It's, it's the good life because you drank our beer. That's what is painted. I've yet to see the commercial where it shows the person who's at AA and who's battled addiction. He's lost his family. They've yet to show the commercial with the person who had the DUI who ended up killing that innocent family because they drive drunk. They have yet to see the commercial where you got the person who dies from, from damage to his liver from a lifelong of drinking. You see, that's how it works. We, we watch TV. And TV glamorizes sex and promiscuity. That just, you know, live it up. Don't deny your your desires. It, It fails to show all of the hurt and pain that such debauchery produces. If that's not even enough, one of the things our society loves to do is it even jokes about hell. I mean, how many times have I heard people say on TV shows or on movies, I'll see you in hell? As if that's something funny. And friends, I, I hope that one of the things we, we glean from our time in, in this chapter today is that sin is not something we celebrate. It's not something to be taken lightly. This is a miserable passage that is heart-wrenching. Wrath and judgment. We've, we end on the, the chapter, the, the section of the chapter, with a mom watching her deceasing children who have been dead for days and weeks and months. And that is just the stench of what sin produces. Covenant breaking is no laughing matter. It should grieve us. I think in the glimpses of the kingdom, 
for this epilogue, this particular section is highlighting the problem of God's wrath and the need for a solution. Two final points of application. One, consider the wrath of God. Psalm 90 verse 11 says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Sin is serious. Covenant breaking is a big deal and everybody here has broken God's covenant. The question is whether or not you are are right with the Lord because of Jesus or you still stand as a covenant breaker. Don't take these matters lightly. Let them sink in. Because what happened to these seven men is what's going to happen to you. Not necessarily you're going to be hung or, or hoisted, but you will experience the wrath of God as a result. And then secondly, our final point, we need to celebrate the Son of God. Romans 5, 6 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Friends, what we really need to think of is not necessarily those seven guys that are hanging in front of their mother, but we need to think of the one who hung on our behalf and the grace and mercy that is found in Christ and that God is a covenant-keeping God who's appeased the wrath and he will make good on his promises that he has bore the curse so that you and I might be right with God. So I want to encourage everybody here today, if you're still under the wrath, turn to Jesus. If you are right with the Lord and you're protected like Mephibosheth, tell all of these people over here who are not protected about Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and we acknowledge our need of Christ. We, we thank you, uh, Lord, uh, for the atonement you have made in Jesus. And God, we do confess how often we view sin in a trivial manner. Uh, Lord, help us to, to really take serious uh, the result of breaking covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond with song.